This is the Engineering Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Noda. In this episode, I spoke with Ryan Atkins, the head of engineering operations at Asano. You may have heard of Ryan from an excellent blog series he co-authored called Bootstrapping Engineering Operations. In our discussion, we break down what NJOPS is, why it's needed, and strategies for bootstrapping and operating an NJOPS team at your company. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Could you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and your role? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Abby. Really appreciate you having me on. So my name is Ryan Atkins. I am the head of engineering operations at Asana. I've been at Asana for just about two years. And in my role, I essentially lead a team that's responsible for engaging and improving the effectiveness and efficiency of our engineering organization and its engineers. There's a lot. There's a lot within that. <laughs> well, I'm excited to dive in. So you co-authored this article we'll refer back to in this podcast called Bootstrapping Engineering Operations. And for people listening, this article was written in 2020. It was mostly a reflection of why and how the engineering ops team was formed at Dropbox. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to rehash everything in the, those articles, but I do want to cover a little bit of background. So for those who haven't really heard of it before, what is engineering operations? Yeah, so engineering operations is essentially a function embedded within an engineering organization that helps to ensure that processes and systems and tooling exist to help sort of optimize the output of the organization. And a lot of that work, in particular work that I drive, is related to sort of an engineer's experience and how engaged they feel in their work. You know, this, this framework that I use around effectiveness, efficiency, and engagement is really like effectiveness. Are people working on the right problems? Are they doing it efficiently as fast as they possibly can? And do they feel great? Are they engaged with their work? And do they feel good about it? And so that's sort of the, the kind of internal focus of an engineering operations organization. That's really interesting. So what does your current Eng ops team look like at Asana? And what are you primarily focused on there? Yeah, we're a pretty small and scrappy team, which I think is probably the state of a lot of just engineering organizations that are going through really rapid growth. But we basically consist of technical program managers and program managers that are sort of aligned to various work streams. And there's a couple different frameworks that I use to explain this. The one that I've been leaning into recently is people-centric programs, business operations, and then sort of like software development lifecycle type work. And so I can give you a quick example of, of all three. So in the people kind of bucket, we have programs like engineering onboarding or our engineering interview experience. Anything related to enablement, talent, growth, and engagement happens sort of in that bucket. In the business operations piece, we're looking at broad-scale communication in the org, setting up you know, systems, processes, sort of standards to help make that predictable and engaging and reliable, uh, but also things like vendor management and headcount planning and growth, all these sort of internals that help the business side of an engineering organization function. And then lastly, of course, we have you know, the software development side, which is what are the set of sort of horizontal programs and initiatives that help teams function effectively. So for example, I have a TPM that's focused on our accessibility efforts. So sort of embedded within um, you know, our design systems and accessibility team, helping to drive forward changes in how teams think about designing and engineering more accessible you know, solutions to our product. On this podcast, we talk to a lot of different types of teams that are supporting engineering. You know, some of those Teams are called platform teams or DevX teams, DevProd teams, infra teams. Many companies have these types of teams. So I'm curious, 
How is NJOP similar or different to maybe a more typical dev prod or dev experience team? Yeah, really great question. And we have a developer effectiveness and developer efficiency sort of team, and we partner with them very closely. I think often teams like that are, are more focused sort of on the under the hood sort of tool chain workflow and systems that engineers are using to manage, review, deploy, test code. And we are sort of a click above that, looking at not just like the system of our engineering lines of code, but the system of our organization and thinking about, you know, what are some of the kind of cultural levers that we might be able to pull that also contribute to the same overall goal, which is helping engineers do the right work faster and feel great about it. That makes sense. I'd love to unpack that further uh, later on, but kind of a related question. So you mentioned you have TPMs in your org. Does the entire TPM org sit under engineering operations or is TPM its own org that has kind of folks working in engineering operations? Yeah, good question. It's it's evolving right now at Asana. And I've been through similar sets of evolutions at prior companies I've worked at, like Stripe and, and Dropbox. And right now, we're sort of small. And I think that Asana, we've, we've gotten pretty far in our scale and growth without leaning too heavily on a need for TPMs. But I do see that changing in the future. And there's a couple of reasons why that are related to some of the things that make you know Asana really special, which is the way we leverage our own product, which is all about kind of work management. It's allowed us to sort of, I think, smartly cut a couple corners in the way that our org is designed. There's a couple other like cultural things that we lean into that I'm happy to talk about, which is our system of ownership that we use to really map what is and isn't owned which enables people to do a little bit more role blending. And so carving out like the specific necessity for one TPM gets a little bit delayed because you have a really organized system for handling that type of work. It's kind of a mouthful there. Long yeah, no, <laughs> no, it's it's really interesting. And I, I will try to come back to that system of ownership later. Yeah. Um, so I think you've done a great job really distinguishing engineering operations from DevX or DevProd teams. Yeah. I'm curious at least from my perspective, engineering operations doesn't seem as common as some of those other kinds of teams. You know, why do you think that is? Why do you think engineering operations isn't more common across the industry? Yeah, I mean, I'm completely biased here, but I think that the the tide is coming and people are beginning to understand. And if you look back historically over the last decades, enablement teams have become more popular. And I think Prior to having engineering operations team, you'll see a lot of like sales enablement, sales operations team that are dedicated and embedded within their functions. And so engineering operations, I believe, is is coming and more to the forefront. And so I'll tell you a couple of reasons why I think it's sort of maybe been delayed a little bit. So the first, and they're all really good reasons for holding off for a long time. The first thing is the nature and culture of the software engineering industry, which is that every engineer that I work with really has a passion for kind of contributing to the community. And that can happen in the form of like mentorship, knowledge sharing, the way that engineers think about open sourcing and just this idea of contributing back to you know the community that exists. And so I think that's allowed organizations to get further than they might have otherwise, just that kind of cultural sort of belief that exists with the role itself. The second thing is really that organizations are systems just like technology systems and tech stacks and thinking about the inputs and outputs. And so I feel like engineers naturally, not just because of the underlying culture, but the fact that organizations are systems, love to contribute to building and understanding and modifying and optimizing the system that is you know, the organization and culture. And that is absolutely the viewpoint that I take, that we 
we operate the engineering org like it is this this system that has inefficiencies and we build up cultural debt like technical debt and it can be addressed. And so I think that the fact that so many engineers are really passionate about this space is why it's sort of delayed. And at a certain size and scale, organizations really benefit from having like dedicated staffing to this. And it doesn't need to detract from you know the way that people culturally value improving you know the, the organizational systems. It can just add to it and make it even better and more efficient. That makes sense. Yeah, software engineers sort of by nature are more kind of focused on these types of problems. And yeah. so to your point, maybe there hasn't been a need as quickly for a dedicated function to solve these types of problems. From your perspective, you know, I'm sure you're since you kind of pioneered this function, are you seeing more companies standing up engineer? Is this are you seeing this trend? I am seeing it. And um, I'll tell you, you know, two other reasons why that that I've seen it sort of emerge more recently. One is the just kind of pure scarcity for engineering talent and kind of the talent war around that. So anything that you can do that an organization that a business can do to help attract the best engineers, grow and retain the best engineers, and also, um, yeah, creating an environment in which they really will thrive. It's just a better business outcome than having like a lot of turnover, spending a ton of time. And, and the other thing is really like making sure that you are aligning sort of the work that engineers are doing to best sort of optimize for their skill set. I have a ton of different examples of this where I've come into an organization and there will be a, like an engineering leader, an engineering director, sometimes an IC, sometimes an EM, who is managing something like an eng onboarding program. And it's fantastic. And it's great to have leaders that are driving that. But what happens with scale is that the operational burden of running a program like that just takes up too much of their very precious time. And I feel like a lot, this maybe sounds sad, but a lot of the, the impact that I've had is just freeing up time from senior engineering leaders by creating a better organizational system for these programs that exist. And yeah, I've just seen this time and time again of helping to make sure that engineering time is the most leverage that it can be. And so you know, identifying the inefficiencies that exist and, and helping to sort of centralize those with like a really high quality program manager is just a better way to get that work done. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure a lot of people listening, eng leaders in particular, can relate to that pain of trying to juggle these kind of cross-cutting initiatives along with their kind of yeah. day-to-day delivery work. And the, fact, the other thing though, oh, yeah, add, can I just add one more thing? Is yeah. that um, I am also very like conscientious. I don't want to come in and be like, oh, eng director, you really love working on eng onboarding. You should stop doing that because it's not a good use of your time. It's not like that. It's more like, what are the things that you really care and value? And what are the things that are just like, honestly, more around you know, program management and operational piece that we could carve out. We could maintain your role as a strategic advisor and help you keep doing the things that you love doing and the things that you're good at and really like support your effort there rather than displace you from this like really important kind of cultural pillar. So that that's sort of the approach that we take. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And this conversation is making me think of one of our customers. Uh, he's an engineering manager cares a lot about developer experience and wants to lead what I think is essentially an engineering operations function based on your definition of it. You know, how should he get started? Like, do you think he should just try to go pitch his leadership on forming an NJOPS team right away? Or do you think he should kind of approach it more gradually by taking on a project or something like that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I feel like I have two approaches that kind of sound contradictory. So one is the importance of the 
I've always seen this grassroots organic nature of how these types of eng ops responsibilities are distributed throughout orgs where people just like really want to volunteer and step up to own a thing. No engineer I know wants to sit behind a computer and just like write code all day long. They want to be involved in the community and growth and collaboration and it's good for their careers and and so that's really critical. At the same time, it's also really important to have some kind of top-down leadership buy-in to the importance of this role. I think that's really important. And the last thing I'll say is, I think scale really matters a lot. So NJOPS is very specifically a function where the benefits increase with the scale of the organization. And so when you are trying to decide whether it's worth making an investment in your first NJOPS hire, one of the first things that I would do is just map out the like inefficiencies that exist or maybe the set of you know cultural programs and systems where people are sort of chipping away at different parts. So understand kind of the broader map and then figure out the smartest way to kind of draw a circle around the set of responsibilities that that first end jobs hire could take on to add a lot of value. And there's no silver bullet to when the timing is absolutely perfect, but I tend to think around like 100 engineers is a pretty good place to kind of get started. Um, you know, there's like famously sort of Dunbar's number of 150 of, of the size of a community where people sort of stop knowing each other particularly well, where for sure you get to that state where having someone who is thinking a lot about organizational strategy really, really matters. That's great advice. In terms of drawing that circle, like mapping out the system of an organization, yeah. based on your experience, are there some common like circles or pain points yeah. that you think someone doing this should look for or expect to find? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I point to, and I you mentioned the blog post earlier, use, use eng onboarding as an example a lot. I think for one, it's um, if you're looking ahead as an organization, I see these these like startup companies that, that raise their Series C, and that's going to go into a lot of engineering hiring. The question is like, how do you do that really well? And how do you make sure when you hire this new wave of engineers that they are set up for success? And I think around that time, having those are typically some of the first things that you would circle. Like, is our onboarding program effective? And also, are we doing an efficient job of evaluating talent? Is our recruiting process really efficient? And that's typically the space where I get started. There's also some uh, benefits that come with having engineering operations actively involved in onboarding, which is that. One, you know, the NJOPS team gets to set themselves up for success because of the first impression that they create on new hires. I have always strategically gotten deeply involved in engineering onboarding as this first touch point for engineers. You have a disproportionate amount of leverage on how you influence the culture in those first few weeks of, of an engineer's experience. Like, what are the things that you are highlighting? How are you helping them to feel a sense of belonging to the team and organization? So, I always start there. I think it's just like really, really beneficial to think about the beginning of an engineer's sort of life cycle with the company through their interview process and onboarding. Well, I love that. I'm thinking back to this engineering manager. So let's say he goes and pitches end onboarding to leadership as something that could benefit um, or, yeah. or maybe some other areas as well. You know, I'd love to get your gut reaction if these leaders were to respond with, you know, we don't need an engineering ops team because teams should be able to figure out their own ways of working. Like, what's your gut reaction to that statement? I think that they can. And it's it's certainly a valid response, especially at smaller scales where you do make difficult trade-offs and hiring the next right head is, is really, really important. So a couple of things that I would like 
give advice to this engineering manager on on angles to um, to bring up. One is around duplicated effort. So if you start to see teams that are all building the same playbook because they are somewhat disconnected, duplicating effort, like every new hire that starts, you know, is embedded with their team and mentors on the teams are repeating a bunch of information, you know, architectural information or cultural information and looking for that, you know, duplicative work across the org, I think is really, really big. The second one, and I, I kind of feel like sometimes I just describe NJOPS as doing this, which is like sort of, I don't know, drawing the circle, encircling or, or putting a lasso around the organization to prevent cultural drift. And so I see this a lot. I see it across functions, you know, from engineers, product management, design, but also like different pockets of the org between product and infrastructure. If you're paying close attention, organizations as you scale begin to drift apart and they begin to do things that are slightly different. I lead a monthly meeting with all of the kind of engineering management community at Asana. And we were just talking about this this week around the desire for like when standardization really matters. And I, this is one of my favorite questions. I ask it to like candidates that I'm interviewing around like, when do you create autonomy and agility for local teams? And when does that stop working well where you need some form of standardization? And in my experience, three things happen that break this down. So one is around like intake processes for teams where they need to like collaborate with other groups and understand needs of their internal customers. And if different teams have different intake processes, it leads to a lot of confusion and inefficiency. So that's one. The second is around managing additional dependencies. Like when you're waiting on a team to build a new service for you and you're not sure when it's going to be done, you start to hear things when you make a request to another team around like, oh, we really want to work on this, but it's not our top priority. So like understanding prioritization is the second one. So you got intake, you got dependencies. The third one is around reporting up where you suddenly have an engineering leadership team that's a little bit too far removed from what's happening at the team level. And it's very hard to look across you know, 10, 20, 50 different teams and glean any sort of valuable insights. It's like, how fast are we moving? Are we actually hitting our goals if everyone is working in different ways? So I feel like there's this scale that you get to where those three things start to reveal a couple like cracks in your organizational structure where NJOPS can come in and kind of provide the glue to bring things back together. I well, I love that point, and I love the question that you ask people you're interviewing. Hopefully, they uh, listen to this and get some tips. <laughs> I'm curious, kind of, it's related to what we've been discussing, but you know, kind of in more simpler terms, what is the business case for engineering ops? I mean, almost as if you were pitching this to a CFO, right? Like, what's the ROI? What's the business case for this function? This kind of brings me back to um, a question that you asked earlier, which is like the future of this trend. Like, why has and jobs taken a while to catch on, and, and why do I think it'll be more valuable in the future? So the business case that I would pitch to our like CFO and my CTO when I'm advocating for headcount are really around inefficiencies that exist in the way that engineers are using their their time. And I think that we've gotten so much better around tooling and measurement of organizational effectiveness with a lot of really um, prominent new frameworks and articles and books and podcasts and things that have been recorded just in the last seven or eight years, we've become much more attuned to measuring kind of the output of an org and understanding the like the core metrics that are so fundamental and make it tick. And at the end of the day, I talk to my manager who leads engineering at Asana and pulling up things like, if we can save every engineer, you know, like seven minutes, we are at a scale where that is generating brand new engineers. And if you think about the amount of time that it takes to identify, assess, hire, 
onboard engineering talent, if we can actually get more value just by finding these inefficiencies that exist, sussing them out and addressing them, we, we can do so many great things. And it's, it's gotten easier to track this. So little things like meeting time. I literally this morning spent time doing an analysis of how much focus time exists in our engineering org per engineer. And we do this through like analytics on top of calendars using a set of tools. Other things like the amount of time that people spend looking for documentation or asking the same help question to get unblocked because it's not easily discoverable. So all, all of these things around like, yeah, sniffing out these inefficiencies in ways that, that engineers are using their time in ways that they don't want to and are inefficient. And how can we build better systems and tools to prevent that? It means we're like, we're generating more engineering impact. That's kind of the argument that I lead with. As we all know, there's so much inefficiency uh, within engineering org. So what's the right investment then in this function? Like, what is there a rule of thumb for a ratio of NJOPS org size to engineers that you have in your mind? It's hard because it depends on so many different things. It depends on a little bit around like the product that you're building. So in what space are you in? It depends on the culture and what you really care about as an organization. In particular, I think... One of the, the things that I love most about Asana is that it has a very long-term oriented mindset. So we're willing to make kind of some short-term trade-offs for long-term benefits. And not every company is like that. Some companies are like desperate to hit their goals and targets in the next six months, and they don't have the luxury of long-term planning. And we do. So I think that's important. So those are all kind of some factors that contribute to figuring out what the ideal ratio is. I kind of like the idea. So one, I think... Starting early makes sense. And maybe as you gradually grow over time and you build out kind of more of this organizational and cultural infrastructure, the ratio can get broader. But I, I like the idea of starting around 100, maybe 125 engineers, making that first end jobs higher and, you know, scaling it up around, I'd say 100, again, like maybe 150 engineers to one end jobs person, maybe a little bit lower than that. You know, other factors would be like, do you use a good work management system? Put in a plug for Asana there. How distributed is your team? What does your team look like? Monolithic is your code base. How many different like products are you building? I think these are all kind of factors that contribute to what kind of that ratio should look like. So sorry that it's a complicated answer. No, that's what I expected. And, and that's, <laughs> that's a really thoughtful response. I'm, you know, in your article, you wrote something I found really powerful. You said HR teams solve global company-wide problems and set policy, which are really eng specific. Engops mm -hmm. directly embedded within engineering is focused on eng org health and the development of engineers. Kind of going back to this engineering manager we've been talking about, like what additional advice would you have for kind of maybe getting buy-in from HR? Right? It yeah. Topically, seems like there's maybe overlap with what HR does. So, how do you like build a partnership with HR, and how do you? you know, advocate for end jobs to maybe a skeptical HR stakeholder? Yeah, I'd say that relationships with your people team and HR team are so critical. And I work very closely with our, you know, HR business partners and our TA partners. And that relationship is so, so important. And I also think it's really important for the end jobs function to be directly embedded and to report into engineering to be closer to the ground. Yeah, establishing a firm relationship and building that trust, it really helps to have your most senior engineering leadership sort of buy in and support your function and what you're trying to do. I think that's really important. I also feel like communicating why engineering needs this dedicated um, role. And, and I'll tell you my reason why is that engineering often 
across a company, especially like in a software company, will have more of the same role. You have more engineers than you have of any other single role in the company. You have more engineers than you have recruiters or sales teams or marketers or even data scientists. Engineering is this large critical mass. And what ends up happening is the engineering org hits these problems of scale before the rest of the company does. And so these things like, I I address this all the time. We have more layers in our engineering org. And so just how we think about our org structure and policies that are created across the org kind of break down within engineering. We have, you know, four layers, five layers of management because we're so much larger. We have hundreds of engineers. You know, if you compare that to other functions, we're just so much bigger. And so um, a, a really good example that I have at Asana is we had this problem with documentation. I'm just like navigating docs, our engineering team prolific, writing a ton of documentation, you know, tons and tons of engineers. So what are our systems and tools that we want to adopt company-wide? Because a lot of these documents that are being written need to be reviewed and consumed by our product marketing team, our finance team. And so we encountered this problem first. And the engineering operations team kind of drove a solution, which was adopting sort of a new set of tools and standards around how we organized information. And we we had to take sort of the lead on that because we experienced the pain first. But it was important to have a consistent solution that would work for the rest of us on. So engineering kind of becomes the guinea pig and the pilot for a lot of things. And it's critical to work with people team and to be close and bring them early as key stakeholders for when you make that switch to broaden engineering org solutions to the whole company. That's so interesting. And it's kind of inspiring because in some ways, what you're saying is NJOPS is kind of paving the path. Yeah in terms of culture and practices for the entire company because engineering's yeah. ahead, right? I can give you just two more examples really quickly. I think a lot of the rigor that we've put into our interview system, so thinking about interview rubrics and how we train interviewers because our scale, our hiring process has been a lot larger than the rest of the company. The other thing is, if you look at typically in a software company, the first you know 200 employees will be very disproportionate engineers as you are building out this product and understanding product market fit. And so you typically have longer tenure employees who have been around a while who are bootstrap creating a bunch of this like internal organizational infrastructure themselves. So one example is around our interviewing processes. Another is around things like career levels and ladders and how we talk about calibrating on performance. I always see engineering teams sort of taking the lead there where they need this form of standardization first. And then often the company will kind of adopt what happens there. So you're kind of talking about a progression of an organization here. I'm curious, you know, what's the progression of a NJOPS team as an organization involves and what maybe kinds of challenges do you see throughout those different phases? I have sort of a framework around this where it's like you're growing as a company and organization and you, you start to see things form. Like if you zoom out enough, you start from just like pure chaos where like no one knows what's going on. And then someone's like, oh, we should really like document this. So someone writes like a checklist and then a checklist turns into a process, right? As you mature a little bit and that checklist needs to be applied across a couple different places, you turn it into like a documented process. And then the process evolves or becomes a program where you have a beginning and, and then a program becomes sort of a full system. And that that's typically sort of the evolution of of a thing. And that could look like, how you address onboarding or information architecture and documentation or interviewing or whatever it may be. And often there's the people side parallel, which is that you'll have 
no one own anything and it'll be chaos. And then one volunteer will step up and it might be an engineering manager or like a senior IC. It'll be like, okay, this is a problem. I'll take care of it. I'm volunteering my time, but I'm only going to spend 5% of my time on it. And then that problem space grows. And everyone's like, hey, how come our onboarding program is not great and hasn't changed in a little while? And the person leading is like, look, I only have 5% of my time to spend on this. And you realize that you sort of need that dedicated hire. And you know, maybe there's a step in between where you might form a committee to work on this thing. Or like one person isn't enough. We need five people working on engineering onboarding. And then you know, you realize at a certain point, okay, this is really inefficient. Who is managing the set of five people that are all volunteering to work on this? Let's get a program manager to focus on it. That evolution, it could take, depending on how quickly an org grows, it might take you know, two years, it might take six months. But I, I see that constantly, that pattern emerge. And if you see that pattern emerge, you can sort of accelerate that process that serves your organization well, if that makes sense. It does. That framework of checklist, process, maybe a committee, and then yeah. program. That's awesome. I love that framework. So then in a mature organization, then where you're maybe more at the program stage of things, I'm sure there's always new things going through that evolution, right? As new kind of problems come up. So then in a mature organization, is is that kind of the work of NJOPS then is continuing to just drive and scale the existing programs as well as implement new ones? Yeah, I, I absolutely drive and scale existing programs. I think it's really hard in, or, in an organization. I think there's a very easy failure mode where you tip, unless you have very large acquisitions of other companies where you suddenly have an infusion of like, you know, dozens of engineers at once, you gradually scale and you totally have this sort of like boiling the frog type problem where things just slowly get worse and decay over time. And you have kind of these paper cuts that you just get used to. And having an NShops organization that is zoomed out to be like, wait a second, I see paper cuts left and right, and they really add up to something detrimental. And so as the org scales, someone who is responsible for pausing and saying, like, does this still make sense? Let's go back to our first principles behind what we really want to try to achieve. I've done this in a lot of places, especially with the evolution of Eng onboarding programs, where it's like, what actually are the highest order things that we're trying to achieve? Is this still true? When we created this program three years ago, when we had you know 150 engineers, do we still have the same set of goals that we had then that we should have now? And so, yeah, constantly sort of evolving as we scale, identifying existing programs, building out new ones, really important. Things like rotational programs, companies might call them like Hack Sprint, Hack a Month. That's something that we're thinking about at Asana, whereas we're large enough that we need to deliberately create structure around internal mobility and making sure that engineers have a sense of growth, that we're not creating knowledge silos. So there's an example of one that we're like, we've hit a size where we, we really need a little bit more structure around this. That's a great point around, you know, kind of always questioning the things you're doing and, and importance to maybe phasing out programs, uh, not just creating new ones. I like that. Pipping a little bit, in your article, you wrote, a successful NJOPS team will help the engineering org in a number of measurable ways. Engineers should not only feel more productive, but be more productive. So I'm curious, what are the ways in which you measure these things, in particular around maybe like organizational health and effectiveness? First thing to acknowledge is that it's a really hard problem. There's a lot of sort of failure modes. And, you know, Avi, I know you've talked with other leaders about this, and I've listened to great podcasts where people have identified this. You can create the wrong metric and create a bunch of perverse incentives 
you know, there's a lot of research around like if you inadvertently gamify certain elements of being an engineer, there are a lot of consequences to that. So we've we've actually, as a team, um, I've driven a lot of this work, partnering very closely with our sort of like DevOps Dev Effectiveness team, and identifying kind of a core set of five metrics that we look at. Some of them are input related, where it's like what are the factors that contribute to an engineer's experience that you know impact their velocity, and some are output related. So what are the, some of the things that we know if they're moving fast or not? And I'd say the most important thing at the highest level is really looking at kind of your core business goals. And like, do we set these? Are we measuring them? Um, Are we making progress toward them? And that exists at a high level. And then a notch down, some of the ones that I'll take, some of the output metrics that that we look at are, and I got to say again, caveat, very imperfect. And we're still learning. And a lot of these metrics also take a long time to bake. So we're looking typically at quarters or halves. And so, you know, I'm only two years out of sauna, so it, we're still letting these things bake. But one that we use is pull requests per monthly active kind of GitHub user. It's imperfect, but at our scale, a couple hundred engineers, it's helpful to kind of look at trends over time. Like, are we continuing to see the same form of output? And, you know, some of the, you can see in my internal documentation that the footnotes and asterisks, which are like, we know that not all, you know, pull requests are the same size or have the same impact but we're trying to normalize over a large group. So that's one output metric. Another is around sentiment. Do engineers feel they can move fast toward achieving their goals? And we asked this question in our biannual, our semi-annual engagement survey. And I think it's really important to keep that kind of qualitative feedback around sentiment of speed. Some of the other input metrics that we look a lot at, one is around hiring. So this is the amount of engineering hours we spend to have one converted engineering hire. And we look at this because it's expensive. You know, we are spending dozens and dozens of engineering hours through our interview process, through interviewer training to make the hires that we need to grow our team. And so we look critically at that. That's one. Another, I mentioned this earlier, around focus time. So are we protecting calendar time for engineers to achieve a sense of flow, right? And do their best work and feel good about it. And this is something organizational creep over time. We look at our calendar of all the all handses that we have, the communications that we send out, and we are increasingly critical about what that sort of level of noise does for our engineering team. And so that's another one looking at, at focus time. One more on the input, like kind of build time is what we refer to as our build cycle time. So like the P50 and P90 around how long does it take an engineer to make changes and see those changes appear in their local development environment? It's such a core part of the engineering workflow. You know, what, what are things that we can re- do to reduce that kind of like build cycle time? So there's five for you, two kind of output ones, really three input ones. And we have a list of like 75 secondary metrics that we also kind of look at. But those five, I think, are useful because they're universal. So they impact every single engineer. They are diverse. So we're looking at different sort of pockets of how engineers spend their time. And and I think they're relatable and understandable. And I think that really matters in, in helping. Also, you know, we're not just like passively measuring velocity, but the act of communicating that we care a lot about this has sort of secondary implications on our culture. Where, you know, like, Ryan is spending a lot of his time looking at these because we care a lot about velocity. And it sends, I think, an important message that reinforces this like cultural value that we have at Asana, which is do great things fast. Well, I love that framework and sounds carefully thought out and communicated. So I appreciate that. Sure. 
pivoting again a little bit earlier, you mentioned this term like cultural levers, right? Like engineering ops is really focused on these cultural levers. And you gave one really great example, which is onboarding developers. That's this great, you know, I mean, you're really setting the tone for their expectations and initial impressions of the culture of the company. What are other cultural levers that you have? I love this question. I'll give you three more. I think on, I don't know, maybe probably onboarding is the most important one. The three others that I focus on a lot, one is the eng manager community. And we have deliberately crafted a very sort of specific experience for managers. And it exists in like, you know, dedicated Slack channels that we have. Asana also just does this really, really well. It's like very, very deliberate part of what we do. We have this monthly manager meeting that in every meeting that we have, one, it's well attended. So there's leadership buy-in. I've been in other places where people have tried to run periodic manager syncs and you just watch the attendance dwindle over time. And so making sure that it's high production value like and high impact to the attendees and that sort of leadership is sort of supportive of this time is really important. So we have these monthly eng manager meetings and it's super useful to kind of like get a pulse check on the set of people that are responsible for really establishing local cultures of excellence and, and making sure that there is a support community around that. So as a part of these like monthly meetings, we almost always have 20 to 25 minutes of breakout time where managers are meeting with a group of six other managers that they might not know. We also have a um, recognition segment where we are highlighting excellent work and reminding people what good sort of looks like. So that that's one big one, the eng manager community. Another really big one is sort of whatever forum you use to kind of communicate broadly. So for us, it's an eng all hands that we run kind of monthly every six weeks or so where we curate the content and we are very deliberate and mindfulness is another asana value around what that experience looks like. Like what, what do we want to reinforce? What do we want to help people understand? And so we had an eng all hands just yesterday where we had this amazing, you know, 15 ish minute segment on our experimentation framework. Where there was a lot of like, you know, we could underscore some of these themes around velocity moving quickly and also how we care about customer value and what that looks like. And so Using a platform like Angel Hands is really important. And then I think the last one is any form of like leadership stage. So, you know, I work very closely. I help to run sort of our, our head of engineering sort of staff meeting where we meet bi-weekly. And that's such a critical touch point of just like surfacing concerns that people have from within their sort of engineering pillars or divisions. And having a really kind of tight leadership team, I think, is really important. Again, all of these things are acting to kind of prevent this cultural drift. And these are really the sort of set of platforms by which we can incorporate a lot of our engineering kind of cultural strategy and make sure that they sort of percolate to all the right places, that we also have the right form of, of input. Yeah, that was a, a long answer. <laughs> no, it was a great answer. It, I'm kind of blown away, actually, because it makes so much sense uh, now that you explain it. You're, you're kind of there at the very beginning of the developer journey at the company, but then you're there working with executive leadership, but also the manager community. So you're you're kind of everywhere. So that's yeah. definitely a cultural lever. Can I can I add one more that I think is really important that we do really well at Asana, yeah. which is having these sort of structured kind of feedback mechanisms. There are a lot of kind of like uh, public within Asana projects that are really really important and easy to access, and they encourage like general contributions. So I'll give you a couple examples. There's a project that that I've spun up that's called Eng Org Opportunities, and there's different variants of this across Asana. It's sort of a, a cultural pattern that exists. So there's there's a project called Asana Opportunities. There's a project that's called I'm glad you asked. 
And basically, it's people can insert any questions that we have, and we have a comment thread about it. And people can upvote and engage. And there's another project that's on engineering velocity opportunities, so very specifically related to that. And having these clear forums that exist, I think, endorses their use, right? It's like, we really want to hear from you. Just like, you know, just like you might make it easy for people to report bugs. You know, these are cultural bugs. Like, how can we surface them and and work together on them and decide what's important and, and move forward? And so I think that's another critical kind of component to our sort of cultural infrastructure. That makes sense. Well, those forums kind of remind me of something you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, which was the system of ownership. I'd love to yeah. know what that is. Yeah, this is, I mean, longstanding. There's there's blog posts that were written, you know, 10 years ago. It's kind of a core part of Asana's DNA. We have, we, we call it areas of responsibility or AORs for short. And essentially it is a database that we've created in Asana that maps out who owns what. And in a way, it plays out sort of as a um, kind of parallel kind of org chart. It's not our managerial chain, very deliberately, but it is a an ownership sort of hierarchy. And it spans a wide range. So there are things like parts of our product and tech stack that are owned. So an example I typically use something like mobile authentication is like owned by an individual. And so if you have questions or you identify a bug, there are also sort of sub areas of responsibility, like iOS authentication is owned by someone else, Android authentication is owned by someone else. And that's one pattern exists across our sort of product and technology stack, but also from a cultural perspective. So there is an an AOR written for Eng all hands. And there is an engineer who is responsible for sort of directing and curating the content. And I partner closely, I am the parent AOR holder of our Eng all hands effort. Interview questions have owners. Everything has owners. And so it's one, it helps for just like routing questions and nothing can kind of fall through the gaps. But two, it formalizes and makes important the sense of ownership such that when you are reflecting on your growth and impact as an engineer, it's pretty easy to pull up these AORs that you've done work on. We also, within engineering, sort of structurally support this type of work in the way that we've set up our operating cadence. So we, we operate in sprints, and we have these two-week sprints. And periodically throughout the year, we'll have what we call off-sprints. And off-sprints are sort of designed to, one, create a little bit of the right kind of slack into the system, where sometimes you know sprints carry over, they enable teams to pay down technical debt, but they also allow individuals to spend a little bit of time reflecting on their AORs that might exist beyond kind of their core work on their teams. So that off sprint comes up and you're like, ooh, that interview question, all the answers to that question have been leaked online. I'm going to need to like rewrite a bunch of this. And that's my time to kind of work on that. Well, it's a really impressive practice. And it's making me think, you know, there's kind of this idea of having cross-functional teams that own specific areas of a product or or a business that's decoupled from the management hierarchy, right? But this is taking that to a whole nother level where you have people yeah. owning things that sort of decoupled from even teams. How do you decide what like is and isn't an AOR uh, at Asana? Yeah, difficult philosophical question. I would say it's kind of amazing to me that it's there are very few things that couldn't be AORable, like turned into an area of responsibility. And and I think an important part of the system is being free to sort of abandon an AOR or collapsing it. We see a lot of change and I actually, at a metal level, I am the AOR owner of the AOR system. And so helping people transition AORs 
if you're, you know, if you're burnt out from it, or if, you know, it's just time to do something new, or if you, you frankly just don't have time and bandwidth to do it anymore, we have a full process for transitioning those ARs. I see things split a lot. If you look at, um, I'll give you an example. Within our engineering interview process, there's a, a one core AOR that exists that has a portfolio of sub AORs where people are working on how do we onboard new hiring managers? How do we train engineers as interviewers? How do we make sure that all of our questions are assessing the right set of skills that we want to see in our candidates? How do we help to customize new interview loops when we start to go after like a new particular role? All of these are sub things that are owned. How do we help our hiring managers close candidates and talk about hard questions that they might ask? All of these things are are owned and that also empowers individuals to make local decisions to make these things better. So I feel like there's so much benefit that we derive from sort of this, this system. Changing topics a little bit again. Yeah. Uh, you know, how do you see things kind of evolving for the NJOPS domain? over the next three to five or, or 10 plus years? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of, of roles that evolve. I think like we talked a little bit before about sort of TPMs and, and playing this role and helping, you know, filling in sort of the seams of the organization. And you know, I, I sort of saw this this evolution at when I was at Dropbox, which we, we sort of formed sort of a, a central services kind of org. I've talked um, with a lot of folks at Facebook who have sort of this, their mission control kind of model and I think that's sort of the, the natural evolution is to bring together sort of this central set of services that can partner together that, that are looking organizationally wide. Some kind of core components that I see us growing into are deeper analytics is one and being able to sort of leverage data. Data becomes more valuable as your org grows and you can draw a different set of conclusions when you have um, just richer and better data. Another is around tooling. So building out sort of the set of, of tools that we need. What's really amazing about Asana is that a lot of the like thinking about organizational effectiveness is a core part of the product. The problems that we are facing and what we solve, what we see as an organization, we know that a lot of our customers see too. And so working on embedding that within our product itself. So I think a lot of the like the next layer of NJOPS is not just like managing these surface level programs, but really setting up the tooling and systems to scale these things broadly through better analytics, data capturing, reporting, and then, yeah, just sort of some core tools to automate a lot of the work that needs to happen. Well, Brian, thanks for that answer. And we've covered so much in this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully we can have you on the show again in the future. It's really fun, Avi. I love talking about this stuff. Hopefully that comes across. 